Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7, 89.7, and 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Julie Murphy, and today I have the great delight of welcoming Dilruba Ahmed to our show. Welcome, Ruba. Thank you, Julie. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, it's, I'm so excited. Dilruba Ahmed is the author of Bring Now the Angels by Pittsburgh Poetry. Her debut book, Daca Dust by Grey Wolf Press, won the Bakeless Prize. Her poems have appeared in New England Review, New York Times Magazine, Plowshares, and Virginia Quarterly Review. She has taught with Swarthmore College, Chatham University's MFA program, Hugo House in Seattle, and Warren Wilson's College MFA program for writers. She teaches her own classes and consultations. And we will uh, have your website posted as well as your full bio and links to your books and so on. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Julie. I'm excited about this conversation with you. Yeah, I've really been looking forward to it. Uh, Ruben and I met at a class in Hugo House that you were teaching on swerves. I forget the exact title, but swerves and leaps and swerves. Yeah, yeah, it was so much fun and I really enjoyed your presence in the class so much. And um, I really highly recommend to any of our listeners to look for your classes and join in. Just uh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm so glad we connected to the class. And it's been a real gift of online teaching, which I had not done, uh, at least not much prior to 2020. But I've had the chance to connect with students, um, not just on the West Coast, but all, all around the country and occasionally um, from other countries as well. So yeah. I'm delighted that that's what brought us together. Yeah, it's really great. And I've also really enjoyed reading Bring Now the Angels and uh, some of your older poems from Daka Dust. You create you. such uh, intimacy in your writing. And some of the subjects you touch of grief and loss and all of the global concerns, you know, a lot of Poets approach that a little bit more at arm's length, and your poems are so immediate and intimate. Uh, listeners, you should just run out and buy this book. You're gonna, you're gonna love yeah. it. Thank you, Julie. I appreciate that. Yeah, um, yeah. And, I've definitely been drawn to both, you know, personal material, but also I find myself really intrigued by more public. Um, content as well and little things in the news or on the radio or something I'm reading online will catch my interest and um, and then you know sometimes a poem will come out of it yeah that's, that's really great as I generally do I've asked Ruba to bring in a poem that she admires and let's start the show off with that okay thanks Julie um so the poem I chose is by Adam Zagadevsky um, I'm sure many listeners have heard it before it's try to praise the mutilated world and this is the translation by Claire Kavanaugh. Try to praise the mutilated world. Remember June's long days and wild strawberries, drops of rosé wine, the nettles that methodically overgrow the abandoned homesteads of exiles. 
You must praise the mutilated world. You watched the stylish yachts and ships. One of them had a long trip ahead of it, while salty oblivion awaited others. You've seen the refugees going nowhere. You've heard the executioners sing joyfully. You should praise the mutilated world. Remember the moments when we were together in a white room and the curtain fluttered. Return in thought to the concert where music flared. You gathered acorns in the park in autumn and leaves eddied over the earth's scars. Praise the mutilated world and the gray feather a thrush lost and the gentle light that strays and vanishes and returns. Oh, that's beautiful. That is Ruba Ahmed reading Adam Zagievsky's poem, Try to Praise the Mutilated World, from his collection, Without End, New and Selected Poems. And he wrote that in 2002. Yeah, many times when I read that poem in a class or um, I have, you know, included it in part of a reading, people are surprised to hear um, when it was written. Uh, and I think what Part of what's always intrigued me about the poem is that um, it speaks to our contemporary moment so clearly, even though it you know wasn't written in the last five years. Yeah, uh, and and part of it is that we uh, you know I think we are living in a time where we uh, we feel the shadow of all the things happening in the world, um, you know, on the ground and in the environment, and um, and at the same time, you know, there there are things to be joyful about. There are things to yeah. be happy about. And uh, this poem, I feel, teaches me over and over, you know, a way to write about that experience of, of disjunction. Um, yes. Without, you know, focusing, I think part of what fascinates me about this one, Julie, is that the frame never t turns fully towards light or fully towards shadow, but is always acknowledging both throughout. Yes. And it's such an urgent poem of hope. When you look at the poem on the page, it's just 21 lines long and a variation of the phrase praise the mutilated world is repeated five times, including the title. So right from the beginning, like he's really try to do it, try to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And right. exhortation, right? That imperative yeah. shifting. And then he's and telling we must do it and then we should do it. And then in the last three lines, simply praise the mutilated world. Yeah, yeah, such a powerful use of repetition and variation um, and intensifying and shifting over the course of the poem. Yeah. Um, and my understanding is that um, Zagajewski was had returned to villages that had been evacuated during, uh, in his homeland Poland, villages that had been evacuated during World War II. Um, <clears throat> you know, and tragically, many people never came back because they yeah. were, um, you know, they were executed. And um, and so on the one hand, there were these abandoned homesteads, right, with things overgrowing, you know, overgrowing outside of them. And at the same time, um, the poet was experiencing, you know, a very beautiful, sunny day with a blue sky. That's blue right. sky. And so as I understand it, that disjunction of sort of like, well, this is a beautiful, clear, sunny day. Uh, and at the same time, look at where I am and the history of the place I'm in. Um, that's what spurred the poem. That's right. And, and the, 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 the beauty and the, the mutilation are right next to each other. 
you know, and, and with these imperatives, remember, remember June's long days and wild strawberries, drops of rosé wine, the nettles that methodically overgrow the abandoned homesteads of exiles. He stays so close to those pairs. Yeah, it's just stunning in its specificity and in its use of details to lay out, you know, the parts that are more um, positive, we might say, or, you know, embrace light, but never looking away from the shadow, right? And we get that shadow right at the beginning with the word mutilated and just those two diction choices, right? Praise and mutilated up against each other creates such a tremendous amount of tension. Um, But I feel like the, the poem gives us a language to talk about authentic experience, right? Like this is the world. It's not going to be all, you know, we hope not all um, darkness and shadow and nor is it all light and loveliness, right? Um, And so, you know, I try to think of like a visual sometimes when I'm working with a poem. And for this one, I always think of like a DNA helix (laughs) where (laughs) these two aspects are intertwined. Yeah, Yeah, that's really wonderfully said. And then the poem resolves its urgency in those last few lines of the poem, praise the mutilated world and the gray feather a thrush lost and the gentle light that strays and vanishes and returns. And that gentle light that ultimately returns is such a tender resolution. Yeah, so beautiful. And that promise of the return, right? Yeah. <laughs> it means everything to the closure. I, I study this one so, so hard for closure, because if you do a little thought experiment and just drop that final line um, and end with uh, the gentle light that strays and vanishes, I find that so chilling. <laughs> you know, like the idea of ending on the word vanishes is so much, uh, it's it's a much much colder and um, darker ending than adding in that final line, right? Vanishes and returns. Yeah. And I think if he didn't um, include the gray feather, a thrush lost, it would be too sappy. We wouldn't be able to take it. But I think he's really saying this is how it always is. There's always suffering and there's always relief. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I've gone through and just tracked like the addiction choices, the positive connotations, more negative connotations. Um, but yeah, that constant interweaving of those two aspects of light and shadow, I think, um, feel feel authentic to our lived experience, feel authentic, especially to this contemporary moment where, you know, everyone's, I think, struggling with uh, how do we write about the experience of joy Um and and not look away you right yeah. not look away from darkness and shadow that's that's you know that's pervasive it's it's ever present um right. and of course you know granted there will be poems that do that and occasions for doing that um but i'm always interested in the poems that that weave you know that that bring both yes. into the frame yeah it's a, it's like that uh the terrible beauty yes yeah yeah. And and sometimes the poem I bring into class to talk about with this one is um, Catherine Pierce's poem, Anthropocene Pastoral, in which she's talking about climate change, climate crisis, right? Yes. And, and yet the poem is um, also describing the seductive beauty and sort of languorous feeling of the warm weather uh, at times of the year when it shouldn't be warm, right? right. Things blooming when they shouldn't be blooming. Yes. And the language too is very seductive. So that, yeah. that kind of interweaving of light and shadow, I think is... Yeah. is just so intriguing. Well, that's great. And I, and I also love how you're bringing up how 
poems tend to talk to one another across time and across culture and across style um, that, you know, poetry is a big, long, circular conversation. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea of framing, you know, the act of reading and writing poetry as joining into a very long standing conversation. That's, yeah. that's really wonderful. Yeah, that's great. Well, if you're just tuning in, this is the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julie Murphy, and we've already begun a delightful conversation uh, with poems with today's guest, Ruba Ahmed. Ruba, let's turn to your work now. Um, I want to ask before you before you read, will you share with us a little bit about when you began writing poetry and how you were drawn into a life of writing? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, so I can only guess at the origins of my my writing of poetry in particular. Um, I I had older siblings who were interested in writing, and um, you know as I was entering high school, I came to understand that both of my parents had also um, tried their hand at poetry and that really um, the country that they had come from, which is Bangladesh, in Bangladesh, poetry is really part of the fabric of everyday life. And there, you know, everyone has some or many poems committed to memory and the recitation of poetry is um, is widespread. So it's incorporated into everyday life in ways that it's not in in, you know, in American life, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but before I knew all of that, I think more than anything, I was um, intrigued by the books that my sisters were bringing home. So everything my, you know, college age sister brought home, I would try to read everything my high school age. Um, sister would bring home. I was trying to read <laughs> um, and probably not understanding, you know, 50% uh -huh. <laughs> of it. But, um, but the other part of, you know, what I can guess contributed to my origins as a writer is that um, my family moved several times while I was growing up. And so it wasn't really until ninth grade that there was a move where I really, I left a community I really adored and had to move to a new school I really hated and uh -huh. journaling, uh, writing, you know, terrible, <laughs> angst-ridden <laughs> teen poetry was my outlet for my, yes. my sadness about having, you know, being in this situation. Um, and then once I got to college, yeah, I remained interested in writing throughout high school. And once I got to college, um, I was interested in continuing to write but that was the first time that I came to understand like, oh, there are actual things I can do to make my writing better. You know, there are strategies that I can study to make this, you know, <laughs> to make this, um, to make this writing stronger. So um, those are, you know, those are my best guesses at the, at the origins. And the other thing I should point out is that my mother uh, was deeply involved in the poetry scene in Bangladesh and, um, she there poetry recitation is sort of like a competitive sport and so she was involved in that she excelled at it she was getting you know coached on it um and so when she moved to the states you know she continued some of that on her own and she would make recordings of herself reciting poetry in bangla in bengali and i um is sort of the you know almost like the difference between everyday english and like Shakespearean English, you know, where it's yeah. sort of like the formal 
Bengali of poetry was way over my head, even though in my household, we were speaking everyday Bengali all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was hearing her recite these like sort of like incantations, right? Like magical Uh words with magical powers. I could catch a word here and there or a phrase here and there, but overall, I didn't actually know what the poem was about. (laughs) And she would make recordings of these recitations. And so, um, you know, I grew up with that as part of the, part of what informed my understanding of, of language. Um, and so in a way it was sort of like something mysterious and powerful and also beautiful, but, uh, you know, not always understood. So I, I do think that my, my mom's interest in poetry and her pursuit of, of poetry recitation, um, had, it had a big influence and impact on me. How great to grow up with that. Your poems are very, uh, rhythmic and musical. I think you absorb some of that. That may be. Thank you for, for, um, for saying that. I, I am really drawn to the musical qualities of, of language. And I think, you know, so many times I'll start a poem with a snippet that doesn't necessarily make sense. It's just something that sounds interesting or rhythmically intrigues me. Um, so many times part of my revision struggle is making sure that, you know, I'm thinking about the journey of the reader on the other side in terms of that interplay of of sense <laughs> and sound, right? The playfulness around sound or the my interest in sound. Um, and not not assuming that the reader will understand, you know, that the that the poem can be carried with uh, carried by my love for the music of the words alone, but that there, you know, there may need to be some more contextualizing or clarifying for the sake of the reader in the revision phase. That's great. I really appreciate your approach to that. I'd love to hear one of your poems. I think we're going to have you read from Bring Now the Angels first, and we'll talk about the book itself shortly, but maybe you could read the first poem, phase one. Absolutely. This poem was one of the last poems I wrote that ended up in the, that I put into the book. It actually came out of some of the, you know, internal strife in our country around not the last election, but the previous one. Um, And there was, you know, there was a lot of animosity in the world. Um, A lot of people sort of pointing fingers, arguing on social media. And I found myself getting caught up in that, Um, not just in sort of like feeling angry about the state of the country in a general way, but um, but knowing, you know, there were some people in my life that I'd known since high school and um, maybe college that were really voting against themselves and their families um, and um, and in many ways against people like me <clears throat> and people I love. And I was walking around with a lot of anger and realizing it was getting pretty toxic um, so, you know, in my writing, I was trying to figure out how to get through that, like how to process this. Um, and one of the things I came across was I was sort of interested in the time was the idea of forgiveness, whether it's possible, when it's possible, under what, what you know, under what circumstances, by whom, for whom. Um, but one of the things I read that really struck me was the idea of, of self-forgiveness as a precursor to our forgiveness towards others. That's great. What a a great contemplation even to start writing a poem from. Phase one. For leaving the fridge open last night, I forgive you. For conjuring white curtains instead of living your life. For the seedlings that wilt now in tiny pots, I forgive you. For saying no first, 
but yes, as an afterthought. I forgive you for hideous visions after childbirth brought on by loss of sleep. And when the baby woke repeatedly for your silent rebuke in the dark, what's your beef? I forgive you for letting vines overtake the garden, for fearing your own propensity to love, for losing again your bag and route from San Francisco, for the equally heedless drive back on the caffeine-fueled return. I forgive you for leaving windows open in rain and soaking library books again, for putting forth only revisions of yourself with punctuation worked over instead of the disordered truth, I forgive you. For singing mostly when the shower drowns your voice, for so admiring the drummer you failed to hear the drum. In forgotten tin cans, may forgiveness gather, pooling in gutters, gushing from pipes, a great steady rain of olives from branches, relieved of cruelty and petty meanness. With it, a flurry of wings, 13 gray pigeons, ointment reserved for healers and prophets. I forgive you. I forgive you for feeling awkward and nervous without reason, for bearing Keats's empty vessel with such calm you worried you had perhaps no moral center at all, for treating your mother with contempt when she deserved compassion. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. For growing a capacity for love that is great, but matched only, perhaps, by your loneliness. For being unable to forgive yourself first, so you could then forgive others, and at last find a way to become the love that you want in this world. Thank you. That was Ruba Ahmed reading her poem, Phase One, on the High Poetry Collective. I'm your host, Julie Murphy. This is such an amazing and important poem, Ruba. Thank you. There's so much I admire in this poem and not knowing what this poem was emerging from in, in your own personal world. I'm so struck uh, just from the opening of the poem that it's an I thou poem. That second line, I forgive you. I don't know who the I is yet. I don't know who the you is yet. But already, immediately, I'm drawn into a relationship. And I'm not certain about this relationship because for leaving the fridge open last night, I forgive you. I'm like, okay. And then for conjuring white curtains instead of living your life. And so the, the poem opens with this very mundane domestic occurrence. And it's juxtaposed with this metaphorical and the deeper meaning of life. And then that pattern of juxtaposition continues through many of the stanzas of the poem. And it's a little bit like try to praise the mutilated world in that there are these things that are together and you're never looking very far away from either the mundane, concrete things of this life and also the more metaphorical, the deeper, the more ephemeral things that we struggle with as humans through all of these different stages, I can see my own unforgiveness. Well, that's really generous, generous commentary in the poem. I really appreciate that, Julie. And um, I should tell you that the white curtains 
are actually a reference to that uh the poem I just read by Adam Zagajewski, which is, well, you say. know, I was thinking that I'm like, <laughs> is this, a, is this by chance? Or I think this is a literary reference. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and part of that is the, the little voice inside or sometimes loud voice inside that's sort of like, what's the point of what I'm doing here at the table? Why am I writing poetry? That's, you know, it's not, how is it having any sort of impact or use, you know, uh, so to speak in the world. And so, um, that idea of, you know, instead of living your life, instead of doing something that's like concrete or that has an impact, that clear has a clear sort of like usefulness, so to speak. Um, uh, so that was sort of the yeah. the, the self-criticism I was trying to get out there. Well, that's especially great when the exact line from Zagieski's poem is, moments when we were together in a white room and the curtain fluttered is this moment of beauty. And it's from that poem, try to praise the mutilated world. And as you're conjuring it, you're pairing it with this real harsh criticism of the self. So you're really in a way reenacting his poem right in those lines. Well, it's a great honor to have my, you know, my poem uttered in the same breath with Zagadevsky's poem. That's, that poem's been such a, you know, such an instructive poem, um, one that I've really, really admired. And I think, um, you know, it has a kind of vulnerability to it that was important for me in in the writing of this poem, where it was sort yeah. of like, you know, how dig can I deep? What am I, what am I willing to sort of um, forgive myself for, but in a, in a format where like, I have to reveal it to forgive myself for it, right. To at least attempt that, uh, act of forgiving myself for something that I'm carrying, um, to sort of, you know, release myself of that burden with the hopes that that makes me feel more healed in a way that then hopefully, you know, has some kind of ripple effect. Um, of course I wasn't thinking about any of those things when I, when I first sat down to, to write the poem, but, it's great though how those things sneak in, right? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, in the original draft of this poem was really in a in a mixed up in a sort of different order, and um, I I workshop weekly with a, an old friend of mine, Ross White, um, who's a friend from graduate school, and his book, his um, first full length poetry collection, just came out. It's called Charm Offensive. I hope everyone will you know go take a look, go go read it. Um, and and Ross has several chat books as well. But part of what Ross really helped me with with this poem was, um, you know, thinking through the like sort of the scale of the transgression um, yeah. so that, you know, some of those juxtapositions that you see in the way that I uh, changed the pacing in the poem yeah. um, was, was directly out of feedback that I got from Ross, where he was that like, was ooh, yeah, the library books like, yeah, that's that's bad. But that's not as bad as the, you know, like the contempt for the mom right That's so right. so i had to kind of think through on like a scale for myself like what's the level of transgression here and how do i want that journey to play out for the reader that's right and you do a great job of um hinting at what's at stake because even though there's that literary reference in white curtains white curtains for me also immediately conjures death you know it's curtains and the white curtains, there's like a purity to it, a very potent metaphor. And then each of the stanzas increases in the intensity of what's at stake for the speaker. And also as the reader, I'm going along, getting deeper into my own self-criticisms, my own regrets. Like Zagievsky's poem, this poem also very effectively uses repetition. So some version of forgive 
appears in this poem 14 times. Once in the middle as May Forgiveness Gather, which is this very generous kind of softening moment in the poem. And then 11 times is the statement, I forgive you. And that statement is repeated towards the end of the poem. It's repeated twice and then again three times. So it becomes more and more emphatic. And then there's that incredible switch up at the end of the poem in the form for being unable to forgive yourself first so you could then forgive others, which is really the heart of the poem. Like that's really what the poem is is working towards and it's really great. Yeah, I, I really appreciate your close read of the poem. And I I found that in the writing of the poems that um that became Bring Now the Angels, I was using a lot of repetition, anaphora, list poems. And so I had to um, you know, sort of study that strategy and and to think about, okay, how do I make sure it's not you know, there's a risk of becoming overly repetitive, right? Or, or predictable. And so it's something that's, uh, that still interests me, the, that use of repetition. And also, I'm, you know, it's something that I'm still thinking hard about in terms yeah. of like, how do I go about making sure that this retains energy, right? Sustains energy and interest for the reader and, and maintains, you know, continues to have some kind of role and contribution in the poem. So I'm going to pause for a minute. I think we need to stop for our station identification. But I also want to come back and talk about another literary reference in this poem that I was so delighted in. Let's take a break here, and then we'll be back. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm your host, Julie Murphy. You can find the Hive Poetry Collective on Facebook, the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD. Our website is hivepoetry.org. You can follow us on Instagram at Hive Poetry Collective or Twitter at Hive Poetry. And all our broadcasts are posted as podcasts, so you can get them from Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Please subscribe. Also, you can visit our website for our local events, Hive Live in Santa Cruz, in conjunction with Bookshop Santa Cruz and also other venues around town. This is the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz, 90.7, 89.7, and 89.5 FM. Welcome back. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Julie Murphy. I'm here today with Ruba Ahmed, and we've been discussing her poem, Phase One. And I wanted to come back to another literary reference in the book, which is Keats's Empty Vessel. I love poems that have a secret little window in them. <laughs> so this is, of course, a reference to his poem, Ode to a Grecian Urn. Um, I love the idea of the kind of like doorway or portal within poems. And I think, you know, with as with any illusion, um, some readers will recognize and some readers might not. Um, so in this one, you know, of course, I'm thinking about the ode to a Grecian urn. But the other sort of idea that I was thinking about in terms of Keats was this the idea of negative capability. Yes. You know, which is sort of like, all right, you know, as a writer, we're meant to sort of um, be receptive, right? Be receptive to ideas or feelings, even if they're sort of outside of uh, our scope of experience or outside of what we might um, think is okay to be writing about. 
Um, and there's something about that that really intrigues me in terms of like, you know, thinking of ourselves as a as a as a kind of vessel, right? As a recipient of ideas. And that if we're quiet and we listen, you know, things may arise that are unexpected or maybe make us feel uncomfortable. Um and you know, Keats's instructions are to to not, you know, try to strive for reason or logic or to say like, that's not okay to judge, right? But rather just to be able to receive those ideas. And I think for me, <laughs> part of what I'm writing about is, you know, I think in many ways, I I have an overactive imagination. So there's this, this sense of like, this glimmer of possibility and all that could unfold from it, right? Whether that's good or bad, it's, you know, there's sort of an embellishment that my, I feel like <laughs> happens in my yeah. mind that, you know, sometimes I think like, where, where is this, you know, where is this coming from or where is this headed? Um, <clears throat> and so that idea of like sitting back and not judging, but just observing, right. Or being receptive to that, I think is a really hard one um, because we, you know, I think we all carry, uh, voices or ideas around like, oh, well, we can't write about that or we can't say that. Yeah. Um, and so it can take real effort and real intention to say like, I'm just going to sit with it. It's uncomfortable. I don't know where it's coming from. I'm just going to sit with it. Um, and uh, so that's, that's part of what I'm thinking about there. This idea of like, have I gotten too good at that? Have I gotten really good at just receiving those and not having enough of a filter <laughs> right? right? to be able to say like, right. all right, mind, you can shut down now. It's okay. You can stop now. Right. Um, and in some ways it reminds me of, I, I apologize for not remember remembering her name, but there's a South Asian stand-up comedian who uh, was, who was describing her anxiety. And she, <laughs> she said, it's sort of like having an edgy comedy troupe in your mind that doesn't know when to stop basically. <laughs> so there was a little bit of that feeling of like, you know, how do we navigate the space that we're, the Keats is, you know, urging us to enter yeah. right? just being receptive, but then like, and, and I guess part of that is just developing the discernment to be able to say, okay, you know, here's something that could lead to something fruitful. It may be a little risky and or vulnerable, um, but he, you know, I guess it's a matter of investigation to see if it's worth pursuing or not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I, there's a couple things that just really spark for me in that it is that the urn itself is a symbol of life and death. And the poem culminates in the last couple of lines of beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That is all ye known on earth and all you need to know. And he's really pointing to the process of being open and being in that struggle is where it's really at. Yeah, and, absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that you bring that whole struggle into this poem. And at that moment, that's kind of, that's almost like the, um, um penultimate moment of the poem because from there you leap into the relationship with the mother and the the juxtaposition of the capacity for love with loneliness and then self-forgiveness and it's like that empty vessel opens up to hold those very deep and heartbreaking and really you know the dark night of the soul moments in not only the speaker's life, but in the reader's life, because all ours come rushing in. 
and, and then the poem kind of comes to its final moment at last find a way to become the love that you want in this world and you know the speaker's really saying this is the only way to get there self-forgiveness wrestling forgiving others opening up to it all experiencing it all that that's how you become the love and that's just so beautiful and profound thank you so much julie and i i I, i'm not sure why it is but this this poem in particular i've received more responses to than anything else i've written really Uh, you know meaning that the people have said like oh hey i'm using this as a prompt but also just people who've written me you know where i've gotten emails from people saying i came across your poem or um, it was featured in um, the radio program on being and Padraig Otuma, uh, you know, does oh. a radio and it talks about it as well. And so, you know, some people heard it on that program or they just came across it, you know, either in the book or in, in, um, in other publications. And they, you know, they've taken the time to write a little personal note about, you know, what that was like for them or the impact it had on them. And so that's been an incredible experience for me as a writer, because I think, you know, especially as poets, we often have this feeling of sort of like uh, working in isolation and then sort of like, who's reading this stuff anyway, right? We have our, we have our, our poetry world, but it's definitely sort of like a closed community in many ways. Um, so it's, it's meant a lot to me to get these notes from folks I don't know from, you know, different parts of the country, um, just saying, you know, I read this and it, it had an impact on me. I think this is a really important poem for our time, just like Zagievsky's poem is a poem of our time that's endured. And I, I think this poem has that kind of longevity with it because it, it's our human nature that you're writing about. I appreciate that a lot. And I think especially for me, because it came from a place where I was feeling so much anger, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not just anger towards, um, you know, uh, about what was happening in 2016, but also towards particular people where I was sort of so frustrated. I didn't, couldn't figure out what to do with all of this anger yeah. and frustration. And so, um, you know, if it, it, it did feel healing to me to, to sort of drill down, you know, go deep inside and to, try to turn it around to, to yeah. transmute it into something else yeah. um, because I could have certainly written something very angry and have written, you know, lots of things that, <laughs> um, that are, well, that are full of that anger, but who hasn't so. written a rant or two. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. But, um, but I think you're also really beautifully describing um, the process of making art, that this isn't just a personal expression or a dump of your, you know, negative and difficult emotion, but you're really working it and refining it and transmuting it and really getting to the bottom of what the human experience is. And, you know, I think that's what art does, you know, and this is our poetic form. Uh, and I, I think it does it so beautifully. And, and this poem is in your new collection or your newest collection. It's the first poem, but it precedes the first poem. And I think it's a, an incredible container that all of the other poems, which are your father's illness and death, and you, you uh, address a lot of loss as well as relationships with your sons, life in America, kind of juxtaposed with all these global concerns of everything that's happening. And you've got that juxtaposition of joy and beauty did you have a particular impetus in bringing these poems together or is there anything you want to tell us about the writing of the poems in bring now the angels 
Well, the the process of putting together a manuscript is always a little mysterious to me. And I think, you know, I really admire people who go into their writing with a sort of project where they know that they have some vision or idea for the structure of their book. I tend to sort of move through poetry poem by poem. And then I have to kind of step back and say, okay, what's happening here? What's going on here? Which of these pieces are kind of in conversation with each other and which ones aren't? Um, And so what arose for me after, you know, uh, basically what was happening was I was um, grappling with my my father's illness and subsequent death. And um, I had been writing many, you know, many poems where I wasn't I wasn't facing the truth of my experience. I, I found I, I I was really resisting writing about um, his illness, you know, um, struggling with cancer, dealing with all of the difficulties of the healthcare system. Um, and so I was sort of writing around it. I wasn't writing about it or through it. And I, I did that for quite some time. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, and then something happened about a year out from his death when, uh, some kind of floodgate just opened and I started writing uh, in ways that felt much more authentic to what I'd actually experienced. I started writing about his um, battle with cancer and, and, um, and his death and, and all the grief around that. Um, So, and, and at the same time, you know, I think part of what really struck me through that whole experience was all the, the layered, the layered nature of it. So, you know, I, I'm a daughter, I'm also a mother, you know, I'm having to grapple with my father's mortality as well as my own sense of mortality as a parent. Um, And so part of, I think, part of what I, I hope unites the poems in the book, which do kind of cover broad uh, ground is, um, is both loss, you know, there's the personal loss around the loss of my father um, in the first half of the book. Those are the poems sort of clustered together that deal largely with his illness and and his death. And then the second half of the book sort of broadens out into more public forms of loss. And, um, but what I hope is also uniting, you know, the poems in the midst of all that is, is this sort of deep love, you know, the sort of like, writing about things that are, are dark or, uh, you know, writing about grief and loss is, is also a way of writing about love. What is it that we love? What is it that we cherish? What is it that we, you know, don't want to lose, um, or, 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 you know, feel, um, bereft once we have lost it or lost them. So, um, that's sort of how I think about the two sections of the book that, you know, sort of from personal and then broadening out into something a little bit more public. Yeah, and I, I really like, even though like the second part of the book goes into more public, more global concerns, the individual concerns, like they're still in that sprinkled through those very personal, personal story poems um, that are both a little bit narrative, but also very lyrical. And they really felt like there's a, a way that they brought everything that's happened, all these things happen in the world. And then there's these very intimate things that happen side by side with them. And I thought the way that the you ordered the poems, particularly in the ha- last half, kind of like, yeah, life is like this. One day you're, you know, grieving about what's happening with the Taliban. And then the next day you're thinking about how do I go on without my father? And, you, you know, it's, 
it's all mixed up in that way that's very deeply satisfying as a reader to uh, go through that material. Thank you. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. Yeah. Well, let's hear another poem. If you're just tuning in, this is the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Julie Murphy, your host today, and we're here with Ruba Ahmed reading poems from her book, Bring Now the Angels. And do you want to read Underground? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this was one, uh, you know, it came out of um, a similar period of time, right, right around to 2016 or just before that. I'm sorry, it was actually just after 2016, um, because the other the other sort of um, strategy I decided on for myself to work through some of my anger and frustration about what was happening in our country was to get involved in some political activist groups um, on a very, very sort of hyper local level. Mm -hmm. And so um, some friends of mine were starting up. Uh, actually, they weren't even friends of mine at that time. People I did not know gathered in one of their living rooms, invited people to their living room to launch a local chapter of Indivisible. And I ended up getting deeply involved in that for uh, for about for a couple of years. Um, and, and in the end, what happened was that we were, you know, we had um, all kinds of speakers and presentations on a variety of progressive issues and were able to build community in a way that completely flipped our um, county politics. And this is a pretty, you know, longstanding, um, deeply rooted conservative county. So um, it was, you know, it was an incredible thing to be part of. Um, but one of the things I was grappling with at the same time was the idea around resistance, that word resistance that was being thrown around. And I kept thinking, you know, what, is it, what does it really mean for me to be on the phone calling a politician um, and for that to be called resistance? And, and there, you know, there's just sort of a nagging feeling in my mind about claiming that I was part of a resistance movement. It just, <laughs> it felt a little lofty, I think. Um, uh -huh. At the same time, you know, I, I definitely think that work is important, but I think part of what I had to do for myself was sort of put it into context, put it into a framework that made sense to me, which is to say, um, you know, I'm thinking about, um, you know, places like my parents' homeland, which is Bangladesh, where, you know, there's this sort of impression or a longstanding stereotype of of South Asian women being meek or subjugated. But I grew up with stories of, um, you know, women in the streets protesting, you know, wearing matching, wearing all wearing black sharis and, and carrying signs um, or here in the States, you know, gathering together to to cook and sell food in D.C. to send money back for the war for independence. Yeah. Um and so, and, and on top of that, you know, I, I grew up uh, surrounded by um, South Asian women who were, who were brilliant and strong and, um, and quite extroverted and not afraid to voice their opinions. And so, you know, part of what I had to do is just sort of put all this into context for myself to say, well, what, let's look at that idea of resistance. What does it really mean? And so this poem was one of one of my ways of kind of interrogating or at least investigating that idea of resistance to say, what is it and what could it look like? And do we always recognize it? And what does it mean if it's really public, like, you know, marching outside with a sign? What does it mean if it's something very private and we nobody sees it and there's no yeah. audience to kind of, you know, a, a spectator to kind of see it? So 
part of what unfolded was this poem, which is about um, women living under Taliban rule. Um, it's called Underground. Don't say face of the moon, not voice like morning dew. Instead, say hook in the tongue, try barb in the flesh, say knife in the wound. They are turning their locks to paint their faces and their daughters' faces. They look on as the girls regard their eyes in mirrors in the long cracked mirror of history and war. They paint themselves into existence inside the shuttered rooms of their hearts where freedom still bristles. They are stripping veils from their faces and letting loose their glossy hair. They are singing with their daughters, first softly, then loudly, in unison. They have taken their girls underground. They open battered books to teach them letters and words that may save them. Some shave their daughter's locks so the girls might walk a different route each day with cracked books tucked into bags of apricots. They prepare for the minutes apart, the hours. They wait for what seems days, months, years. But first they kiss, they embrace. They take one last look at each face. That was Dilruba Ahmed reading her poem, Underground, on the Hive Poetry Collective here on K-Squid. Wow, this poem really, it leaves me speechless. It's just such a stunning and devastating poem. Thank you. But yeah, I think, you know, um, for me, it was part of situating myself in that in that context of resistance and saying like, yes, I understand that, you know, I'm, I'm doing something that that I hope will make an impact, um, but that there, there are forms of resistance that maybe we're not, we're not all recognizing or seeing. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, my hope was that it was a way to kind of frame that and capture that, um, how, you know, how difficult lives are for some people in different parts of the country, you know, in different parts of the world, as well as in different parts of the country here in America. Um, but that so much of that might actually be invisible to many people, right? The sort of day-to-day -day kind of resistance to to make um, to make a life under difficult circumstances. That's right. And this poem really shows women, mothers and daughters, and the great risks that they take to create change and for liberation. Um, and, you know, the, the opening of this poem, just with the title, Underground, and then those first few lines, don't say face of the moon, not voice like morning dew. Instead, say hook in the tongue, try barb in the flesh, say knife in the wound. Just that opening, it creates such authority in the speaker, right? Because there is that imperative, don't say, instead say. And it it also signals to me that this speaker is not going to gloss over. There's something happening underground and the speaker isn't going to make it pretty for me. The speaker is going to tell me exactly what it costs. And um, so many of the lines of the poem hold different layers of meaning and the line breaks, which are just, really amazingly done, really emphasize the, the different meanings the, the lines can hold. Right? They look on as the girls regard their eyes in mirrors in the long 
line break, cracked mirror of history and war. They paint themselves into existence, line break, inside the shuttered rooms, stanza break of their hearts where freedom, line break, still bristles. And on and on. It just um, creates these pauses for me to really feel the poem at these very poignant moments. And the intensity and the risk grows as the poem goes along. So we go from looking in the mirror to unveiling and to loosening the hair, to singing, to opening battered books, to teach them letters and words that may save them. And then from these very spare details, you create a whole world. Thank you so much, Julie. I, I have to admit, I have not talked much about the beginning of this poem, not with many people. And um, and so I'm so grateful to get your reading of it because it is yeah, it's so much of what I had been intending for that. And I wasn't sure, to be honest, you know, whether it was, um, I talk a lot in my classes about the interplay of mystery and meaning. And I was yeah. never sure whether there was too much mystery at the beginning of that, especially as an opening stanza. But that's, um, but what you said about the, the sort of like not disguising what's uh, difficult or ugly yeah. even um, is part of the the intent of the poem. And those those phrases that I've italicized are, um, you know, they're really sort of like fake translations of poems. You know, they don't exist, but they were meant to, to, to sort of be um, understood as like a, a, a lyrical moment, right? Exactly. Where something could be described in a very lyrical way um, <clears throat> from some imaginary poem. <laughs> That's um, right. And, and the poem ends with that same kind of leap in that, the penultimate moment in the poem, which I, I always look for, like what's the the thing before the last thing, because it informs the last thing so much. So that penultimate moment, they prepare for the minutes apart, the hours, they wait for what seems days, months, years. It, that moment just creates such heartache. And then it's just shattered open in the last two lines. But first they kiss, they embrace, they take one last look at each face. And, and this ending is just devastating because, you know, we're really, we're faced with the fact that they may not see each other again, that this is the ultimate risk that they're taking. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, in, in some poems, uh, some drafts that I, I have, well, part of what's in conversation with this now is this feeling as a parent in America at this moment, um, there is a similar phenomenon, which is, you know, we send our kids off to school with this feeling that, yes. you know, they're they're headed to a safe place and they'll be returning home on the bus. But we know that's not the reality of of life in America. And um, so, you know, it's it's another poem in conversation that's that's still um, it's it's in draft form, but it's it's I think you know, in conversation in terms of that feeling of um, vulnerability and risk and danger. Yeah. Um, and also, again, just thinking about, you know, in terms of contextualizing life, different lived experiences, and um, how, you know, in so many ways that that feeling of vulnerability and, you know, wanting our kids to be safe, that's, that's such a universal, right? No matter that's where, true someone is in the world they're all hoping for that for their children right. yeah. um 
whether, you know, whether they're in Afghanistan or here in America, sending their kids off to school, uh, it's the same feeling of, of wanting to trust that the world will hold them, you know, in safety. Your, your poems do this beautiful work of looking unflinchingly at the difficult details. But in doing so, I think they really bring a sense of compassion and understanding that creates a bridge to different experiences. And um, just like that opening poem, Phase One, I Forgive You, a lot of your other poems builds the understanding and the compassion and connects us to that human longing. Like we all want to be free of suffering. We all want happiness. We all want goodness for our children and our grandchildren and, you know, the people around us. And then that spreads to a much wider and broader and more global world. So thank you so much. I have thank so you. much more I, I want to ask you and chat with you about, but we're here up against the end of the hour. So I'm going to try and sneak in one more poem, Ruba. I'm not sure it'll make it through the final cut of the show, but I'd love to have you end the show with reading meeting. Absolutely. And thank you for all of your comments about my poems, all of your close reading of my poems and, um, you know, really, really taking the time to, um, to absorb what, you know, what's there and to comment on it. I'm really grateful for all of your insights. Kneading. They call it kneading, as in dough or massage, this act of pawing at my bathrobe by kittens. How lasting the memory of the mother's comfort, babies pushing at her belly to bring the milk forth. The gift of warmth while the mother grooms with a rough tongue or simply waits, regal and elegant, dozing and blinking over her litter. The kittens press on and bear their claws, unaware of the pain they cause in their shows of affection. They dig now as though for memories that precede them, claw or no claw, the insistence of paws against fur or flesh, nuzzling for the nipple. I won't forget the sting of my baby's lip at my breast after a long night of biting, how raw the skin grows long before any teeth show. When I see new mothers clutching little bundles at their hips, guiding tiny lips to take what they will give and give and give, I still ache with the phantom spring of milk. How we need and we need. We need into each other and out of each other. In the early days, in a haze of lost sleep, my infant's initial nibble struck me an ancient summon, urging forth the prehistoric, a distant call, emergent, embryonic, meant to burgeon and bloom. Then the milk sprang forth like a warm elixir, a call and response I was hardwired to answer. Oh, beautiful. That was Ruba Ahmed reading her poem, Needing, on the High Poetry Collective on K-Squid. I'm your host, Julie Murphy. Thank you so much for joining us this hour, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time.